Welcome to the Building the Elite Podcast, where we discuss the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of human performance within military special operations by looking at the principles that can help anyone thrive in chaotic and challenging environments. This is Jonathan from Building the Elite. Today, we're going to talk about abilities and skills and why understanding the difference between these is extremely important. The goal of programming is not to develop specific abilities, but to develop specific skills. The difference might seem trivial, but it isn't. An ability is the raw capability to perform a task. It means you have the physical tools to run five miles at an eight minute per mile pace. A skill is the capacity to predictably display that task in a specific environment. This means that you can run five miles at an eight minute per mile pace, regardless of the situation. We don't care how fast you can run if you aren't also reinforcing an ideal stress response, psychological and tactical strategies, and moving with good enough technique so that you won't break down over the course of months of repetitive work. Your run times matter, of course, but they're only one part of a much more complex set of skills that need to be developed. In that spirit, we will sometimes sacrifice absolute performance, like, for instance, your run times, to develop other elements of the larger skill. In the long run, the running speed will take care of itself if we target the right skills and adaptations at the right time. The main problem that any skill solves is how to produce a consistent outcome in different situations. This may seem obvious, but most trainees preparing for a soft selection assume that if they can ruck a long distance, run a fast two-mile, tread water, and do some water comp drills during training, then they can just replicate that in selection. So why is this often not the case? It's because a selection environment selects individuals with a set of skills, not just physical or mental capacities. Think of the difference between shooting a basketball on an empty court with no one defending you versus trying to make a shot in a game in front of 30,000 fans and some freakishly athletic guy sprinting to block you. Training is the empty court. Selection is the game. So, how do you develop the abilities and skills you need? First, you have to learn how to do things well in a low-stress environment. Going back to our example, there are a lot of different ways to shoot a basketball. However, there are certain strategies that will work much more consistently than others. When learning to shoot a basketball, you have to learn what degrees of freedom or how much of the landscape of potential options can be ignored so that you can quickly choose from a range of options that work. In other words, you must have a sense for the potential methods of shooting that don't work well and which ones need to be explored in depth to produce a consistent outcome. So again, it starts with quality. You have to learn how to do things well first. Next, you have to learn how to maintain the same level of competence as you ramp up stress. Think more load, moving faster, for longer, in more variable conditions. Complexity and stress should be increased in an incremental manner once the skill can be demonstrated effectively under baseline conditions. The body is incredibly capable of adapting to different situations. What shouldn't change during training is the quality of your work. Your squats shouldn't look like you're about to practice twerking and save the slobbering zombie shuffle for selection. 
Training is the time to do things well. This doesn't mean rigidity, but sticking to the constraints of qualitative aspects of any movement that matter the most. Degrees of freedom vary both internally and externally. Internal degrees of freedom include all the information that can be perceived from within the body, while external degrees of freedom include everything occurring outside the body that can be perceived. We've already covered how to deal with external considerations, but internal aspects are what most trainees ignore the most. Humans exist in a world that is constantly changing, so our brains have evolved a way of storing strategies or skills that provide a generalized response pattern, one that works with the massive amount of sensory information coming in at any given time. It does this by sending a pre-packaged pattern to the body, known as top-down information, that combines with sensory information, known as bottom-up information, to create solutions. Top-down influences are beliefs, the perceived value of the task being performed, motor programs and skills being utilized, etc. Bottom-up influences are information about yourself in the world, things like vision, touch, smell, internal sensations like pain or an upset stomach, etc. Processing of both top-down and bottom-up information is continuous. Information from both pathways mediate performance and changes in the periphery and nervous system. For example, say you're on ruck march. Feedback from the periphery tells you how your legs and back are currently feeling, which then influences your beliefs about how much longer you can go, your pace, and if your technique, posture, breathing, or stride length need to be adjusted. Simultaneously, your mind is judging how far you've gone, how you feel about that experience so far, how important it is for you to finish at a specific pace, and how valuable the experience is. Your mind's interpretation of that information directly influences what external feedback is ignored and what is amplified, causing increased or decreased sensations of pain and fatigue in the rest of your body. This cycle is a dynamic process that influences skill execution strategies over time, once your brain has consolidated the learning that occurs after an event. In this way, your brain is constantly modifying motor patterns and psychological patterns based on consolidated feedback from the interaction of your mind and the periphery during any activity. To simplify, skills aren't rigid. They are constantly evolving based on feedback. When performing, like for example selection, you only have access to current strategies. If these fail, challenge is too high to attempt new strategies. You will just use the available underperforming strategies with more intensity until stress accumulates and you shut down. This happens in boxing all the time. Some fighters encounter adversity and immediately switch strategies, adapting to the specific demands imposed by a new opponent. Some just rely on one strategy, get panicked when it doesn't work, and then just keep trying it harder and harder until the fight ends and they lose. The brain is constantly evaluating the relevance of the information it receives. What is judged to be relevant is called the signal, and what is discarded is the noise. To do this, the brain sorts through an astonishing amount of sensory information. Revisiting our running example, your legs may be sending a signal to your brain that your legs are extremely fatigued, and your brain can decide to focus on this signal and bring it to your conscious attention, or it can ignore it. What the brain decides is relevant, 
the signal, and what is ignored, the noise, can be controlled with conscious effort. Over time, the brain associates skills with specific signal and noise patterns. By focusing on specific cues or paying attention to specific inputs, you shift attention to and away from the barrage of sensory information that you have access to at any moment. By directing your attention and attenuating your beliefs, you can modify the patterns of sensory information associated with specific skills. For example, if you're in the middle of a long run and you've reinforced that all information related to fatigue is relevant, you'll probably have a hard time ignoring how bad your legs hurt. If you've learned that pain and fatigue signals are simply information used for modifying your speed or technique that can be ignored, you won't have to consciously battle these signals. However, if you've learned to deal with pain and fatigue skillfully, but suddenly feel a stabbing pain in the side of your foot, you'll know that it's a real problem that needs to be addressed. Your ability to effectively cope with pain gives a more accurate filter for what is a problem and what is just a normal symptom of the task at hand. Having an appropriate filter for sensory information allows you to react more skillfully based on the information received. The same principle applies to all sensory information, and it works in both directions. If you disregard sensory information related to foot strike position, you'll probably perform poorly. If you're hyper-aware of the tightness of your hamstrings, again, you'll probably perform poorly. The key is building patterns of sensory information that don't disregard important information, but also don't reinforce strategies that lead to burnout or poor performance. The amount of sensory information the brain has to filter at any moment in time is enormous, far too large to be efficiently sorted. Instead, Brains rely on heuristics, which are mostly accurate mental shortcuts derived from previous experiences. For example, when running, your brain is expecting specific sensory information based on your experiences from the hundreds and thousands of times you ran before. This is the signal versus noise filter explained earlier. For better or for worse, predictions operate on a feed-forward loop. When your experience matches your predictions, incoming sensory information agrees with expectations, your brain reinforces that you have an accurate set of strategies to deal with the brain's perceived demands. When sensory information no longer matches the brain's predictions, your brain jumps from automated execution to conscious processing. This is how you get better at any task or skill. Your strategies are refined over time until the brain's physical execution and sensory predictions match under a wide range of dynamic conditions. Where this process can trip you up is when you focus on sensory information that is detrimental to performance. For example, if every time you run your knee hurts, you'll tend to focus on any sensory information coming from that area. Do this for long enough and that becomes your automatic behavior. The learned pain response becomes automatic and persists long after the actual injury has been resolved. Unless you rebuild the pattern by shifting your attention to other sensory information, the prediction of knee pain will persist even when there's nothing structurally wrong with the knee. This doesn't mean that all pain and fatigue signals are simply made-up expectations. As we all know, if you put your hand on a hot stovetop, you'll feel pain immediately regardless of your expectations. However, your associated predictions for a specific skill can color what you experience. 
Unless the incoming sensory information is strong enough to disrupt that expectation, your prediction will drive what you perceive, the signal, and what you ignore, the noise. Conscious effort is expensive and slow. When it's time to perform, not practice, you don't want to rely on modifying predictions on the fly. It's much more efficient to change these permanently so that you can automate the skills that you need to execute at full speed and under stress. Perception, attention, and action work together to drive you into self-fulfilling cycles of actively engaging with the environment and seeking information. Within these cycles, we interact with the world according to systemic beliefs, which our own actions reveal. In other words, our beliefs drive our perception of the world, which drives our actions because the goal is to create an accurate representation of the world in which sensory information aligns with our predictions of what will and should occur. This alignment allows us to navigate the challenges of life. In the traditional thinking around how we interact with the world, we act, perceive sensory information, and then weigh and utilize that information to modify our beliefs. The process is actually the inverse of this. Action is driven by the need to find sensory information that agrees with our beliefs. In order to change behavior, we must first change beliefs, which change the sensory information we seek, which in turn changes action. If we encounter sensory information that doesn't agree with our expectations, we can either disregard it as error or modify behavior to seek out situations where the sensory information does agree with our beliefs. The ability to learn and adapt to new information comes down to first-factor psychological traits such as a growth mindset, our learning and process orientation, our sense of motivation and meaning, basically what challenges, setbacks, and the goals you're working toward mean to you, and self-awareness, or knowing your own personality traits, thought processes, and behavioral tendencies. These are the components of your beliefs. Without changing beliefs, any sensory input, no matter how accurate or false, can be explained away through a variety of top-down and bottom-up mechanisms. When we talk about building skills, we start at the foundation, building awareness of the concepts and principles that fundamentally change the way a person thinks and interacts with the world. To paraphrase Henry Ford, whether or not you believe that you're in control of what your brain perceives, believes, and amplifies, you're correct. If you don't believe that this is possible, your current beliefs and strategies will self-reinforce. However, if you believe that you can train your brain to learn new skills and associations, you're also right. By opening your brain to new information, you've already changed your expectations. Without addressing the way your mind works, it doesn't matter how fit you become. You'll always be hostage to a mind that when pushed far enough, will revert to underlying patterns that limit performance. To build better skills, we help clients create feedback loops that skillfully direct their attention to drive skill development. Initially, these are usually purely physical or psychological capacities that we eventually meld together into complex combinations that are the building blocks of skills. That's it for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, please leave us a review and subscribe so that you can catch future episodes. You can also go to buildingtheelite.com where you can learn more about training for special operations and our one-on-one -on -one and app-based training options. 
You can download a sample chapter of our book, access free selection training guides, and use our assessment profile tool in order to see how your physiological profile compares to what's needed to succeed in special operations selection.